Good morning. The Lord is here in this place, and I believe He's got something in store for every one of us. So just be open to whatever that is, because usually when God moves and does things, more times than not, it's in ways that we don't even expect it. So uh, just be receptive to it. If you have your Bibles open to Romans chapter 8. We're continuing to look at different aspects of the gospel, treasures that we discover about what it means to belong to Jesus. And again, these are truths that have all been taken from a reading that I did on Easter Sunday that we are almost finished with. We've been uh, four and a half months now looking at these different truths, and we've only got two more Sundays looking at all the, the parts of that that had to do with what we have in Christ. And then after that, we've got just a couple more Sundays we're going to spend looking at the last part of that reading that dealt specifically with the person of Jesus. As for what we're looking at today, the individual truth there that I read on Easter was this. I said, before he formed you in the womb, he knew you and predestined to conform you to the image of his son. You are called, you are justified, you are glorified. That statement there is a combination of two different verses in the Bible, one in the Old Testament and one in the New. The one in the Old Testament is Jeremiah 1.5 where God is speaking and he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. The other part of that is from Romans 8, 29 through 30, which is going to be our main text today. So let's all stand together as we read the word of the Lord. Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome, and in chapter 8, beginning in verse 29, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. And Lord, uh, just good for being here with us, people who don't deserve even to be in your presence. By your grace and mercy, you allow us, God, to be. And Lord, when we are in your presence, we are changed. And I pray that that would happen this morning. Lord, I ask that just your breath of life would blow over us in here today. And we leave here different, knowing you more, with more love and affection and worship in our hearts towards you, and that we would begin to live lives that even look different to others. And that draws them to you as well. So, Holy Spirit, come and have your way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I know there are probably some of you may be just a little bit nervous right now because both of these texts speak to a subject that has caused more controversy within this church than any other thing that I have preached on before. And not only has it stirred up folks here, but for some reason it's also stirred up quite a bit of people in other churches as well. To the point where, I mean, we have come under attack and I've been accused of preaching false doctrine and all kinds of horrible things said about the church. And 
that's crazy to me because I really can't wrap my mind around why someone would want to come against this with so much venom. The truth is, you've heard me say before that if you don't agree with this, I have absolutely no problem with you at all. And it's, it's good for us to discuss it. I mean, we need to be seen differently on different issues so that we can come together and chew on God's word together and really wrestle with it. That's what, that's what being a part of one another and part of a church is, is all about. It's good to, to wrestle with and, and discuss these things. But this is not an issue that if we don't see eye to eye on would cause me to want to break fellowship with anyone I mean, God knows not to put them down for seeing it different than I do. And like I said before, this isn't an issue that should cause division. Because whether or not you believe this or not, no matter what side of this issue you are on, it has absolutely no bearing on whether or not you are saved. It's just a difference in understanding in how that salvation came about. So with all that being said, some of you may be thinking, well, if that's the case, why talk about it if it causes so much controversy? I mean, why not just avoid it in order to avoid all the drama that tends to come with it? I'm going to let Charles Spurgeon answer that question. If you're not familiar with Spurgeon, he's only one of the greatest men of God and greatest preachers of the gospel who ever lived. He was pastor for 38 years of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London during the 1800s, which was one of the first megachurches. He wrote hundreds of books and magazine articles and devotionals. He started a college. I mean, there are not many who have done as much for the advancement of the kingdom of God as Charles Spurgeon has. And even though he's been dead for a long time, I consider him one of my teachers. I've got a, a complete volume set of 15 books that are nothing but sermons that he has preached that I love to read and often go to as one of my main sources for study. I'm not going to preach the sermon that he did on the doctrine of election. You wouldn't want me to because he spoke in very fancy language using these and thous and wherefores and, and all that. So it would be hard to follow along. It's hard for me to follow him sometimes. But I do want to read what he said at the beginning of his sermon in response to the question, why preach such a controversial subject? Because this was an issue even back then. He was preaching on the text in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, which says this, We give thanks to God always for all of you, knowing, brethren, beloved of God, his choice of you, or his election of you, which some translations read. And here's how Spurgeon started his sermon. He said, At the very announcement of the text, some will be ready to say, Why preach upon so profound a doctrine as election? I answer, because it is in God's word, and whatever is in the word of God is to be preached. But some truths ought to be kept back from people, you will say, lest they should make an ill use of it. That is popish doctrine, referring to the Catholic Pope. It was upon that very theory that the priests kept back the Bible from people. They did not give it to them, lest they should misuse it. But are not some doctrines dangerous? Not if they are true and rightly handled. Truth is never dangerous. It is error and reticence that are fraught with peril. But do not men abuse the doctrines of grace? I grant you that they do. 
But if we destroyed everything that men misuse, we would have nothing left. Are there to be no ropes because some fools hang themselves? And must cutlery be discarded and denounced because there are some who will use dangerous weapons for the destruction of their adversaries? Decidedly not. Besides all this, remember that men do read the scriptures and think about these doctrines and therefore often make mistakes about them. Who then shall set them right if we who preach the word hold our tongues about the matter? I couldn't have said it any better. And my favorite part is where he said, because it is in God's word and whatever is in the word of God is to be preached. Listen, folks. We've got enough wimpy preachers who water down the Gospels and cherry-pick safe texts in Scripture to preach on just to keep talking about what everybody wants to hear. I don't want to be one of those preachers regardless of how many church members it may cost me. Neither do I want to take something difficult in Scripture and try to explain it as something other than what it actually is just to make it more palatable to the audience. And so, even if you disagree with what I'm going to be talking about today, I hope that you can at least appreciate that, because I'm going to do my best not to sell you short when it comes to the Word of God. If I were to avoid talking about this, it's not like I'd just be avoiding one or two verses that people just take and run with. I would be avoiding a pretty good chunk of Scripture. And I'm going to give you just a few examples of, of where this is found The first chapter of Ephesians is actually full of it. And verse 5 says, In love he predestined us to adoption. In verse 11 he says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. All things would include salvation, which it says he works after the counsel of his will, not ours. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. In Acts 13, Paul is preaching the gospel. In verse 48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Peter addresses his letter to God's elect and later calls us a chosen race. In Romans 9, Paul's talking about how God chose Jacob and Esau long before they were even born. And in verse 11, he says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls Later on in verse 23, he refers to the lost as vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and to believers as vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. In the book of Jude, it's talking about people who have crept into the church and began distorting the grace of God and refers to them as those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. So that's just a few where we find this doctrine in the Bible. We don't have time to look at every reference that talks about this in the Scriptures. And it's not just in the New Testament either. We read the one in Jeremiah 1, and I talked a few weeks ago about how God chose the people of Israel not because of anything about them, but simply because He is God and He can do whatever He wants 
He told them in Deuteronomy, I have chose you to be my very own as my treasure out of all the peoples of the earth. So this is a major truth of the gospel that gets highlighted over and over in God's word. And so like I said, to avoid it would be to avoid a good chunk of the Bible. I've shared with you before about how uh, the journey that God led me on into believing this and how I struggled with it for such a long time because I used to not believe this. But it was the fact that I kept coming across it whenever I would read the Bible that eventually led me to believe in it for what it is. I still had a lot of questions and blanks that needed to be filled in, but once I accepted the fact that it was in Scripture and I couldn't deny that anymore, then eventually those questions were answered and the blanks filled in. The truth is, this shouldn't be something for us to be afraid of. It should be something that we rejoice about, that we worship God for, and should act as a warm blanket of comfort and security around us. The book of Revelation talks about names being written and not written in the book of life. And it says, long before the foundation of the world was laid. That means that if you belong to Christ, if you have been saved, your name was written down in his book before the world was even created. How awesome is that? And if that's true, then it has incredible ramifications for how we live. Before I get into that, I want to address something in this. How many of you, by a show of hands, believe that salvation is by grace alone and not by any works that we do? That salvation is all God's doing. This is not a trick question, I promise. So it's okay to raise your hand. Good. I mean, I hope you do because that is one of the core doctrines of our faith based on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which says, By grace you have been saved through faith. And that, talking about that faith, is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Many people have no problem believing that, but some who believe that do have a problem with the doctrine of election, which is very contradictory to me. Because if salvation is by grace alone and not works, and if God is the one who gives us the faith to believe, uh, like Ephesians says there, then how does that happen if God doesn't choose you? And his choice would have to happen before we were born. Otherwise, we could say that it was something about us that caused God to choose us. And if that's the case, then salvation would be by merit rather than grace. And so for God to set his affection on someone long before they even had a chance to prove that they deserved to be chosen just magnifies even more the fact that salvation is all God's doing and just magnifies even more how unbelievably huge his grace really is. It's like God's going, you want to know how big my grace is? You want to know how much it's not about you and it's all about me? I chose you before you were even born. Not only that, but I chose you before the foundations of the world were even laid. What do you have to boast in? Nothing. Nothing at all. There is nothing that we can take credit or glory for. It all has to go 
to him, which is the whole purpose of it. The Bible says that apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. Not asleep, but dead. Something dead is incapable of bringing itself to life, is it not? Colossians 2.13 says, when you were dead in your sin, he, talking about Jesus, made you alive together with him. Salvation is all God's doing. Jesus even talked about this. In John 6.37, he said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And then in verse 44, listen to this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he says it again in verse 65. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from my Father. So my question is, if God doesn't choose you, then again, how does that happen? If God is the one who draws us to Christ, which Jesus himself clearly says there, Would he not have to choose us in order to draw us? Of course he would. Here's one error about it that causes people to get hung up on this. They say it wouldn't be fair for God to only choose some for salvation. Well, be very careful about declaring what is fair and what isn't fair when it comes to how God governs. We're not the ones that get to make that call. Plus, if you want fair, fair is that everybody gets wiped out. Everybody goes to hell. Because everyone is sinful and guilty of blasphemy and the belittling of God's name, it is only fair and right and just for everyone to receive the punishment we deserve for that. And so for God to choose to show his mercy to some means that he has gone above and beyond what is fair. I think that at times our mind tends to go to places that aren't even reality when it comes to this. For instance, the the thought that of someone wanting salvation but not being able to have it because they weren't chosen. Now, granted, that would seem harsh and fair, but I'm telling you right now, that never happens. That's never the case. Because apart from God drawing us to Christ, no one desires salvation. Having a sinful nature, being born with that, means that we desire everything and anything but God. Anything but Him. And so for Him not to choose some means that He are giving Him exactly what they deserve or what their sinful nature desires. And you would have been given what your sinful nature desires too had God not chosen you to be a vessel of his mercy. Another argument against election is that it would make people prideful and arrogant, as in, ha-ha, I'm one of the chosen ones and you're not. There's two reasons why that argument won't fly. Number one, when you really know what it means to be chosen and then you don't deserve it at all, it's very hard to be anything but humble. There were people in Houston area last week that were trapped in their homes with water rising by the hour, some of them neck deep in water already, completely unable to get themselves out of that. 
and they would have died had not someone come and saved them. And for some, they were rescued by someone coming and doing for them what they were unable of doing themselves, just like Jesus did for us. And there were instances where there'd be people in one neighborhood who were saved while others in that very same neighborhood weren't so lucky. They didn't make it. I'm sure you've seen some of the video and the pictures of those who were saved. In any of those pictures, did you ever see anyone gloating and bragging about being saved while others died? Of course not. What you saw was an attitude of, I'm so thankful, but why me? You saw people just sobbing because they were so humbled and grateful that someone would do that for them and broken because even friends of theirs didn't make it. That's how it is when you know what it means to be chosen of God by not even being close to deserving that. For someone to be prideful and haughty about it would mean that they thought that they deserved to be chosen. And if that's the case, then I would say that they aren't saved at all. They don't understand what it really means. I'm telling you right now, when I first came to understand how my salvation came about, and that it was all God's doing and not mine, and that he determined that I would be long before I was born, it made me want to live my life so much more in such a way that brings honor to him. A lot more so than it did before I realized this. I know I don't deserve to be chosen, but I want to live my life to where it looks like I did. You know what I mean? I don't want my life to be lived where somebody would be able to go, God chose him? That was a wasted choice. No, I want it to honor him. I want to live my life as a thank you for what he has done. In several of Paul's letters, he exhorted his readers, walk in and conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the calling by which you were saved. Second Thessalonians 1.11, he said, I pray God will count you worthy of your calling. The other reason why being chosen wouldn't make us haughty about it is because it's hard to have a haughty attitude towards someone who's not chosen when you don't know who they are. And that is something that you and I will never know this side of eternity. Never. We might be able to recognize those who are chosen because the Bible gives us the evidences of that, but there is nothing for us to know who isn't. The absolute vilest sinner that you can think of right now might actually be one of God's chosen, and they just don't know it yet. And even lying on their deathbed, God's choice in them can come about in the nick of time, just as it did for the thief on the cross. We never know. All we are to do is just assume that everybody is chosen. View them as if they are and share the gospel with them in hopes that they will be saved. And here's what's so neat about that. 
because some are chosen, we're pretty much guaranteed to win some. Jesus said, all the Father has given me will come to me. Not might, but will. I'm going to come back to this in just a second. But let's look again a little closer at this text in in Romans 8. Verse 29 again says, for those whom he foreknew. Now, let's stop right there a second because I believe it's important to know what the word foreknew actually means. Some try to explain it as just referring to the omniscience of God where, of course, God knows everything or that it means that he can see into the future and look and see who will and won't believe in him. But this is not talking about a knowledge of facts. It's talking about a knowledge of persons. And it's not a knowledge as in just knowing about someone, but truly knowing them in a very intimate way. The Hebrew word used in Jeremiah 1.5, where he says, Before I formed you in the word, I knew you, is the same word used in Genesis 4.1, where the King James Version says, And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and had a son. How many of you know there's a big difference between knowing someone and knowing someone that leads to a baby? (laughs) Big difference there. Two complete different levels of intimacy. That's the kind of intensely intimate knowing that's being referred to in Genesis 4-1, Jeremiah 1-5, and Romans 8-29. Let's read on. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined, the Greek word there means to determine beforehand, not something other than what it says, to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. In a nutshell, here's what that means. When God determines to do something, it never fails to be done. Never. If God determined to save you and to grow you into the image of Christ and for you to spend eternity with him, there is nothing in this world that can keep that from happening. It will be done. And if that doesn't bring you comfort and security and confidence, I don't know what will. And it should motivate us to share the gospel with as many people as we can. Because like I said, some are going to answer that call. Listen, don't let the doctrine of election lead you into the error of fatalism. Fatalism is the belief that, well, if God's going, if God choosing to do something is, is not going to, is always going to happen, well, then there's no reason for me to witness to anyone if they're going to be saved anyway. That's just silly. Yes, there is a reason. It's called getting involved in what God is doing. It's called working with dad in the family business of restoration. Folks, God doesn't need us for anything. And he made this very clear to me when I was down for five weeks with my knee surgery and this church went along without missing a beat. I knew it, but it really brought home the fact that God doesn't need me to accomplish his purposes But by his grace, he allows me to be a part of what he's doing and what he's going to do. It's the same with leading people to salvation. God doesn't need you to do that, but he's a good father who wants his kids to join him in what he's doing. And by his grace, he allows you the privilege 
of taking part in saving a man's soul. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? Let me ask you this. How many of you like to fish? Now, this is a trick question. No, I'm just kidding. It's, it's not. Well, let's say that you go to a lake. The person that brought you to that lake said, these fish are hungry and they are going to bite anything. Fish are guaranteed to be caught here. Would you go, well, if that's the case, and I'm going home because they're going to be caught anyway. There's no need for me to fish for them. Of course not. You'd be chomping at the bit to, to cast your line out there as fast as you can. That's how we should view sharing the gospel and being fishers of men. We're guaranteed to catch some because God has already determined for them to be caught. So who wouldn't want to do that? And here's how I'm going to land the plane this morning. This would make you want to shout right here. If God set his affection on you long before you were born, for you to be a recipient of his mercy and to use you for his glory and to mold you more and more every day into the image of Christ and live with him forever, and nothing can keep that from happening, nothing will stop that, then listen to this, because it just makes the rest of Romans 8 absolutely come alive. You can't teach the last part of Romans 8 with first, without first teaching verse 29 and 30. Look, starting in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? In other words, what does this mean for us? Why is it good to know how your salvation came about? Because of this, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring against char- a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Meaning, things are going to get difficult in the world, but no matter how difficult they get, because God set his affections on you before the foundations of the world were laid, Verse 37, but in all these horrible things that we go through, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why can he say that with so much confidence? Because God determined it would be that way a long time ago. And if you're in him, you are a part of that. Let's pray. Praise be to your holy name, God. You are so incredibly awesome. Lord, your ways are so beyond us. And, Lord, that just comes more and more evident the deeper we get into your truths. 
like I keep saying, Lord, we, you keep saying in your word that we need your power to be able to even begin to grasp it. I pray that by your grace we'd be able to do that here with these truths. Lord, I pray for those that Satan has been attacking. Just with the guilt that's been coming at them, continues to make them go back and forth all the time, doubting their salvation, doubting how you can love them. Lord, I pray that this truth would break through all that deception. And they will see that it's not about them, but it's all about you and your sovereign grace. Lord, I pray for those that are in here right now, Lord, who you have set your affections on long ago, but they've been running from your call. Lord, I pray today would be the day that that call turns into them being justified. Them turning from their ways and putting all their hope and trust, their whole life in the finished work of Jesus. And Lord, that they would be saved on this day. Jesus, you even said, the harvest is ripe. It's ripe because you have determined for some to answer the call. Lord, you ask for laborers to go out into the harvest. So, Lord, make us the people who are excited about going out and reaping that harvest, sharing the good news with others, knowing that some of them are going to answer the call because you decided for it to be so. Thank you that we get to take part in what you're doing. Thank you that you have given us life, that, that by your mercy... God, you chose not to just be a just God or we'd all be dead, but you also chose to be merciful. Thank you for allowing us to be included in your mercy. Holy Spirit, would you come and have your way in our hearts, in our minds, just in our knowledge of who you are and all that you do. May our love just grow for you more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.